Good morning. It is good to kind of, I'm seeing you now. Good to see everybody here this morning. Just a couple announcements real quick. Um, It is Pastor Rennie's birthday, right? Yesterday, Pastor Rennie. He's almost 40. He's not, but you know, it's close enough. It's also Eddie Tusi's birthday, who was here at 6 a.m. this morning shoveling out the snow so we could be here. So if you see Eddie, make sure you thank Eddie. It's also Kathy Loud's birthday tomorrow. She does our counting. So, and also it's Trish Raffrey's birthday tomorrow too, right? Absolutely. And so the Patriots better win today as a birthday gift to all these people. Anyway, um, just a couple announcements before we get going this morning. Um, Those interested in going to Haiti, we have a Haiti meeting after the service down in the youth center. So please come out and, and, and join us. Even if you're thinking about it, again, you're not obligated to go just by showing up, but come and get the information and, uh, and we won't keep you long. And, uh, and next, we have a special uh, guest with us. Would you welcome um, Pastor Godwin uh, up here real quick. He's going to share with us for about five minutes. If you recall, we had, uh, we've been doing 1027 projects, and one of the projects that we did was one that he is uh, overseeing in charge of. It's building a hospital in Ghana in a remote place, and also sending out ambulances to very remote places where people can't actually get into the hospital. And so we got behind them financially, and um, he does many other things, but it's good to have you with us. Would you just share with us what God is doing? Thank you, Pastor Selwyn. Can we appreciate him? He's, thank you. I always tell churches that sometimes we don't know what we have until the Lord transfers them. And I believe that God has blessed us with a unique man of God and woman of God. Um, before I share what I have, I was sitting at the back during the first service, and I felt the Holy Ghost speak to me repeatedly the word focus. And I was like, God, what is this focus about? He says, I'm calling my people to focus. And it is in when we focus on what he's called us to do, that is when we begin to see his glory. And which was kind of a confirmation of what pastor preached. So in Africa, we lead a ministry called Meaningful Life International. Meaningful Life has a passion to take the gospel to every corner of the earth especially in the areas where most preachers don't want to go because it's getting highly dangerous. With Boko Haram and ISIS and all of that, we work in Islamic strongholds. And part of what we do in breaking the iron gates is to go there and love on them, show them the love of Jesus. So we go with fresh water, provide water for those who are still drinking from mud holes. We go out to places where people are so sick but they don't have access to healthcare, and we bring them healthcare, and in the process introduce Jesus to them. And some of the things we have done so far has been just amazing um, to the glory of God. We have planted several churches. We have seen Muslims come to the saving knowledge of Jesus because you have given and because you have supported us. What is hot on our radar right now is a missions clinic the Lord has laid on our hearts. Because some of the cases we are confronted with, we cannot treat them on the field. We cannot have surgeries under trees. And so we are building this health center. We have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars already. We are at the last lab raising about $165,000 to equip the clinic. And December this year, we'll begin to go to the rural places with ambulances and minister to these Muslims that Jesus loved them equally. And we are calling on 
all of you to partner with us. Sometimes you think about huge amounts. No, God will probably have, just have you to give the small amounts. The, the ones, the tens, the fifties would go a long way to ensure that Jesus is preached in every corner of the earth. I will have more information at the Connect Center. And I want to thank David and Barbara uh, Boabin and also Doris and Munaya. Anytime we come here, they become our families. And so church, God bless you again. There's a tangible presence of the Lord here. And I believe that God is going to heal us many. God bless you. Thank God for, uh, for, for people like Pastor Godwin and his family. God positions people, and he's positioned Pastor Godwin uh, there at such a time as this, and God is using him, and, uh, and God has used you as well in your giving and, and to, to support and send them out. But I want to pray for him, but I also want to challenge you. If God speaks to you, go have a conversation with him. God may lay it in your heart to support personally in addition to, or maybe even go but like I said, first of all, if God tells you to go, ask him first, then go. <laughs> Will you stretch out your hands and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord God, for God. We thank you, God, for the anointing on his life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for his obedience to you, God, to go to places where not many will go. And we just pray, Father, that you would continue to lead him and guide him, direct every step that he is to take. God, meet every single need that this ministry has from the clinic, Lord God, to wells, Lord God, to everything that they touch. We pray, God, would you bless? Would you break down uh, the bars that, that, that try to hinder them, Lord God, from going out, Lord God? And would you prosper them and bless them? Be with his family and protect them and keep them. And pray, Lord God, that through their ministry and through his obedience, Lord God, that many would come to know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. We are continuing with our series on Nehemiah this morning. Uh, Last week, Pastor Rennie launched our series, and and, uh, our series is called Rebuilding. And uh, what Pastor Rennie talked about was rebuilding a heart of genuine worship. He mentioned how it's possible to have a worshipless temple. It's possible to have a worshipless church. It's possible to have a worshipless life. And basically, that a temple does not produce worship. A church does not produce worship. Head knowledge of Scripture does not produce worship. Only life devoted to God's purposes will produce real worship. Real worship that exists in words, real worship that exists in action, and real worship that exists in lifestyle. But because of a a, a worshipless temple, we find Ezra going to Jerusalem. To give you a little bit of history here, in 586 B.C., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jews were taken into exile. Um, Many years later, the first wave of exiles returned. They began to to build the temple. It was held up for a little while, and then they finally completed it. But what existed was a temple full of basically ritual because the people's hearts were not where God wanted them to be. They were were intermarrying with people that God told them not to, to intermarry with. They weren't living obedient lives to God. And so what we find here is 13 years before we even read about Nehemiah, Ezra goes to Jerusalem. And Ezra goes to Jerusalem with the intent and with the mission of basically religious education, turning the people's hearts back towards God. And so he goes to a place where there's a temple, 
but it's a worshipless temple. They go, they sacrifice, they do the thing, but there's no heart behind it. And so, 13 years before Nehemiah even enters the scene, there is Ezra. And now we get to Nehemiah. Ezra's been on the scene for 13 years, and now we open up the book of, of, of Nehemiah. And let me give you a little bit of background on who Nehemiah is. The pulpit commentary gives us a little bit of history here, and this is what it says. Nehemiah belonged to the Jews of the dispersion, meaning the Jews that had, had gone into exile and were taken away from Jerusalem. Nehemiah is believed to have been born while in exile in Babylon, and it was while he was still a youth that he became attached to the Persian court. All right, so he's born in exile. He's probably never even seen Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. He, while he's still young, he's placed in the Persian court, and because he's a good-looking guy, he is able to obtain an important, lucrative uh, office or position as the royal cupbearer. This position that God places him in brings him into direct contact with the king of the time, who was King Artaxerxes. I want to ask you real quick, how many of you still believe that God positions people? Right? God positions his people. What I, I, I like about this is that, man, 142 years earlier, right? 142 years earlier, before, before Nehemiah finds himself before the king, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was torn down. But even during that destruction of the temple, during the time where the Jews were being taken off to Babylon, God had a plan. Even before Nehemiah was born, God knew his name. God was already positioning. God was creating a way back then, a way for his people to come back to him, even in the midst of this destruction. And so people being carried off, God's already planning. God knows Nehemiah way before he's even born. How important do you think positions are? Well, I'm asking that question on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Right? This should be kind of obvious, right? I think it's safe to say that we believe in positions. Um, I think when it comes to, to the Super Bowl this afternoon, if we begin to see people lining up where their positions don't dictate they're supposed to line up, we'd get a little concerned, right? If Tom Brady is now basically lining up on the offensive line, what is going on here? If he's suddenly lining up like a receiver, we're going to get concerned. Why? Is Tom Brady an awesome football player? Well, if you're in New England, you think so, Right? In the rest of the world, maybe you don't, but we know he is. But he is awesome, right? He is awesome at what he does, but we don't want him running. We don't want him running. He's not a running back. He can't run to save his life. He's terrible at running, but he's a great football player, right? So basically, we believe in positions. They have their positions. Gronkowski has his position. Edelman has his position. And so we get a little concerned when they're not lining up where they should be or if they're not playing in their position. I think it's safe to say that how well the Patriots do today will really be determined on how well each of them play their position and that they do. So all of us are hoping and praying and trusting that they play their positions and that God is a Pats fan. That's what we're hoping for. But God always positions his people, all right? God positions people. He has positioned people from the very beginning of time. Let's look at some of the people he's positioned. He positioned Moses, didn't he? From the time he was an infant, right? Tough circumstances for Moses' mom, but what was God doing? 
God was working on something, wasn't he? See, God saw the future, and he saw basically his, his people enslaved. And so God was already creating. For the time Moses was knit together in his mother's womb, God knew him by name and had a position for him. And he was going to lead God's people out of bondage into freedom, wasn't he? God also positioned Joseph, didn't he, to deliver his people. God positioned Esther. He positioned Mordecai. He positioned Nehemiah. None of these folks came to their position by chance or by luck. God didn't have to go and search high and low till he found someone who just happened to be in the right position at the right time to help him out. No, God was positioning people ahead of time. God knew what he was doing. God is always positioning people for the purposes of leading people to him. And so we see this all throughout scripture. I just mentioned a couple of them. But here we find some 142 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, we find Nehemiah. Nehemiah who had been positioned by God. Nehemiah who was living far away from Jerusalem. And like I said, it's highly possible that he had never even seen Jerusalem. Yet it's the land that he calls his home. And although he's far away from Jerusalem and the temple, Nehemiah has a heart after God. Just a side note here. All right? You have Jerusalem and you have the temple and you have people who are, so, who are in close proximity to the temple and their hearts have drifted from God. You have Nehemiah who's far from the temple. He's in this completely secular pagan environment where they don't believe in God and he has a heart after God. Temples don't produce worship. Churches don't produce worship. Ritual doesn't produce worship. Hearts after God produce worship. The other thing I want you to know, too, is, man, it, you can worship God in other places besides just the church. You can be in the most secular environment, around the most rugged people, and you can be worshiping God in the midst of it. You can worship God wherever he places you. And we see this taking place here. Here Nehemiah is, and he's serving this, this, this king, and, 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 and he has a heart after God. And so what happens is, while he's serving Nehemiah, he gets this report from these people who say, hey, Jerusalem, the walls are in ruins, and, and they're vulnerable to attack, and, and the gates have been burned. And upon hearing this report, Nehemiah's heart breaks. It breaks. It's interesting that, though, because he could have probably said, you know what, that's a long way away from me. It doesn't concern me. It doesn't affect my life. So why should I care? But see, a heart that truly worships God breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. It broke God's heart to see his city and his people living in this way. And all of a sudden, here Nehemiah hears this report, and, 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 and his heart breaks Because of his city, the city of God that represents God and his people is in ruins. The pulpit commentary states this, Israel was both a nation and a church. A sacred nation representing and embodying the kingdom of God on earth. So when you think of Israel, synonymous with saying the church. And so to kind of put this into terms, maybe we would maybe appreciate or understand more For Nehemiah, hearing the conditions of Jerusalem would be similar to someone coming up to you and saying, oh, let me give you a report on the condition of the church. Let me tell you how the church is doing right now in the USA or in the world. It would be like hearing someone come to you and say, hey, listen, I want you to know that the church is crumbling. Christianity is crumbling. There's moral decay in the church. People are leaving the church and, and people are drifting from God. 
would that break your heart? Or would it be easy for us to say, no, well, I'm good where I am. It's, things are okay. So that's kind of the same kind of scenario of what happens. And for Nehemiah, who loves God, this crushes him. This is unacceptable. This breaks his heart. And he prays and fasts. If you read Scripture, if you read Nehemiah, it sounds like it all takes place on one day. Like he hears this news, he prays and fasts, and then he goes. But actually what they say is it actually took place over a period of three to four months that he prayed and fasted. Open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to pick up the story from here. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. We'll read a little bit, we'll stop, and we'll break it down, we'll read some more. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Let me pause here real quick and kind of break down for you exactly what's happening here. True love of Nehemiah led him to prayer. And it led him to fasting. But it also led him to action. True love of God leads us to prayer, but it doesn't stop there. I think sometimes we're guilty of saying, you know, I hear this problem, I'm going to pray about it, as if our responsibility ends there. As if praying is all that God calls us to do. Yes, God calls us to prayer, and prayer is incredibly important, but our prayer should lead us to action. Our prayer should lead us to obedience. I think sometimes a lot of Christians cop out by saying, oh, I'm going to pray about it, as if they can check the box and go, that is my gift, that is my contribution, that I can pray. Yes, you need to pray, but you need to do something. God's praying to God should lead you to some kind of divine reaction where he begins to tell you this is your response to this. And so we see Nehemiah and his heart breaks for this situation and he's fasting and he's praying, but it leads him to this action. And actually what's interesting in his prayers, he begins confessing sins that he himself has not committed. He prays and confesses sins for Israel and he concludes himself saying, we have done this. We have turned our backs on you, God. And then he recalls to God, these are your promises to us. Your word says that if we return to you, then you will return us. And so he agonizes with God and he prays to God and he fasts for three to four months. And then he finds himself in the presence of the king. You see, he recognizes after praying and fasting, he recognizes his position. He prays, he fasts, and suddenly he realizes, wait a second, I stand in a position, I stand in a place where I might possibly be able to make a difference, where I might be able to do something here. I'm praying and fasting, I'm concerned, but man, here I am in this place with the king, and this king has power, and this king has authority, and I have his ear, and I have been placed here right now. Wow, what if I could do something? But see, even that thought was risky. See, this wasn't done. You can't just go up and approach a king. If, if things went horribly wrong, if this king didn't show favor to him, man, 
things could be terrible for Nehemiah. See, his position as cupbearer was a prosperous, rich position. He occupied a, a high office in the court of the Persian monarch. And so he, he finds himself in this royal position and, 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 and with this desire to say, man, I should be doing something. But he also finds himself in a, in, a, in, a, in a place that he could make a difference to Israel, make a difference to the Jews. But to do this, to make this difference, would require him to approach the king. And to approach the king is a sin against the fundamental doctrine of the Persian court life. It would be him taking advantage of his position and approaching the king. This wasn't done. This wasn't allowed. This wasn't tolerated. In fact, if he were to do this, this could cost him. At a minimum, it could cost him his position. If he was lucky, they could just put him in prison. See, just to look sad in the presence of the king, the king could have you executed immediately. Because it's disrespectful and it's rude. And so here's Nehemiah, and he's, and he's cut himself, he's, his heart is broken for, for what's happening in Jerusalem, and he's been praying and fasting. And all of a sudden, you, you, you see in Scripture where he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. All of a sudden, in the midst of this wrestling and this heartache, he recognizes, man, I have position, I have an ear of the king. And with that recognition comes great concern. With that recognition comes great fear. With that recognition comes this challenge. Man, what do I do? I could do something here. But if it doesn't go right, I could lose everything, including my life. But if it goes right, man, I could make a difference here. Man, he's in this catch. What is he going to do? What if this actually worked? His opportunity was scary. And it filled him with fear. But stronger than that fear that he faced was the heartbreak that he felt. And his heartbreak grieved him to the point that he would risk his life. That he would risk his job, his security, his well-being. And move beyond the safety of his position and approach the king. Sometimes I wonder when I look at this too, you know, you have to think, man, as he was wrestling with this, man, I could lose my job if I go through with this thought that I have about approaching God. Do you think he was concerned about losing his job? Or maybe for the first time in his life, he realized what his real job was. Maybe for the first time in his life, he suddenly realized, wait a second, this whole positioning here from, 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 from the time we've been in exile and God putting me in this place has not really been about taking care of the king and testing his wine and his food. No, God has positioned me here at such a time as this for now the kingdom of God. And maybe for the first time he suddenly realized, wait a second, my real job is to honor God in my position. And so maybe for the first time in his life, he said, no, I found my purpose. I know it makes sense. Whatever the case might be, it doesn't take away the fear from him. He embraces his position. He realizes his audience. He realizes the authority the king has and how God has placed him there at such a time as this. And so there he does. He, he finds himself standing before the king. He goes into the presence of the king, and, and, and he's serving the king. And, man, this is now go time. This is the moment of truth. And all of a sudden, the king sees his face, and his face is sad, and the king calls him out on it immediately. Why is your face so sad? Do you realize at that moment, his life hung in the midst? Just 
by the recognition that the, that the king saw he was sad in front of him, the king could have said, execute him, get him out of here. That's rude and disrespectful to me. So at that moment, it is on. It's now or never. It is happening right before his eyes. And so he is there and he's standing in front of the king. It's his moment of truth. He's embarrassed. He's trembling. And at that moment, the first thing he does before he even responds to the king is he prays. It was one of those emergency prayers, right? Those times you're like, oh, God, help me. But because he had a prayer life with God, God heard him. And so he finds himself here. His life is hanging in the midst of it. It's a challenging, terrifying moment. We don't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And he says, God, give me favor here. God placed him in this position for this time. God's been waiting for this moment, but it's scary. Sometimes God asks us to do the same kind of thing, doesn't he? Sometimes God places us in positions that could be costly. Sometimes God tells us and asks us to go out beyond our comfort zone, to step out. You know, it's interesting. I think of, of the Pats game against the Ravens. And you guys remember that game. If you don't, I'll remind you of it. Some call it the play that changed everything. All right? Some call it the play that changed everything. The Pats are there. It's a playoff game. The Ravens are leading 28 to 21. And Tom Brady lines up in his position, and we're watching this game. And if they don't win this game, we've been trailing the entire game. And all of a sudden, they hike the ball, and Tom gets the ball, and Edelman's not doing what Edelman normally does. He just kind of runs laterally and kind of stays still where he is. And all of a sudden, Brady turns and throws a lateral pass, and all of us are going, okay, okay. And then Edelman just gets this pass. And stands up, and Amadola is running down the field. And all of a sudden, Amadola does something he never does. Right? He goes back, and I'm not a quarterback, so don't, my form is horrible. But he takes this ball, and he passes a 50 or 4-yard touchdown pass to Amadola, who runs it in, and the game changes. It ties the game, and they would go on to win that game. The game that changed or the play that changed everything. At that moment, a lot of us were going, like, what is going on? What is he doing? Edelman, could you imagine if Edelman, like, threw the ball and just, like, fell on the ground? It was just terrible. All of us would be like, what were you thinking? Like, what were you doing? You know, I think about Edelman. We know that he played quarterback in, in, in college. And, he, and when you talk to Belichick, they asked him, how long is this? Or oh, they asked somebody, how long have you guys been rehearsing this? They've been rehearsing this for five years. Right? Five years. Edelman was equipped to do this, but it wasn't his position. But all of a sudden, they call his number and they go, hey, this is what we're going to do. I can only imagine Edelman was probably a little bit nervous. This is his first pass in the NFL, right? Man, it's kind of like do or die. If he messes this up, everyone will be like, oh, man. And so I imagine he gets this pass, and he's thinking, man, at this moment, what I, what I do now matters. And he basically steps out of his comfort zone, out of his normal routine, and he passes that ball, and it changes the game. Well, here we have Nehemiah. We have Nehemiah. In a play that could change everything. He sits there. He's standing before the king. What he does now matters. It could go horribly wrong. 
He could be thrown in jail. But if it works, this is a game changer. If it works, man, this changes things for Jerusalem. This changes things for the Jews. And what stands in the balance is his life, his risk, his job, his prosperity, all of these things. And so he's standing here in this, in this, in this position. So let's pick up again in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it that you want? So the king knows he's wanting something. He said, then I pray to God of heaven, to the God of heaven, and I answer the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Here he is. He's, he's before the king. Not to mention, this is the king, right? This is the king who actually halted the repairs on the wall years earlier. This is the king who's actually responsible for the, for the walls lying in ruins and the gates being burned. And here's the king that, 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 that Nehemiah is approaching for this enormous favor. And not only does he get this favor from Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes takes favor on this Jew, but Artaxerxes actually bankrolls the whole operation. Nehemiah basically says to the man, could you also give me woods from, from the king's forest so that I can make the repairs necessary? And the king writes letters for him. Not only does the king write letters for him, but the king also sends troops with him to accompany him. Who would have ever guessed that would have happened? Isn't it kind of cool how God had it all planned out? We see it so many times in Scripture. And again, here Nehemiah. I guess the question that we should ask ourselves when we read a passage like this is, why? Why, why is this in Scripture? Why doesn't it just simply say, Nehemiah went and rebuilt the wall because God told him to do it? Why do we have to hear about the, the, the trouble? What do we, why do we have to hear about the tension? Why do we need to hear about the fear? Why do we need to hear about the challenge? Why, why do we read about Moses? Why do we read about Joseph, how God gives him this dream and he goes to his brothers and, hey, this is going to be great, look what God's going to do, and all of a sudden he's been thrown in a pit, next thing he's in slavery, and then he's in jail. Why, why do we read all about these things? Why do we read about the Esthers? There's another story I can use to preach the same message. Here she is, right? Man approaching the king, and that could cost her life. That Mordecai says to her, who Mordecai's got this behind the roll scene, and Mordecai says, Esther, you have been created for such a time as this. This is why you're in this position. This is why you're here. Why do we hear about these things? Why do we hear about Nehemiah's? Why do we hear about Jesus? Why do we hear about the Garden of Gethsemane? Why, 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 why doesn't Scripture just say, and Jesus, the perfect Son of God, went to the cross and died for all of us. Why do we have to hear about the wrestling in the Garden of Eden? Why do we have to hear about almost the torment of, man, I don't really want to be nailed to a cross and die. See, see why, why is all of this in Scripture for us? See, it's a picture for us. Just as we came to this communion table and we saw this picture of sacrifice, see, God positions his people to lead his people to him. God positioned Jesus to lead his people to him. Even Jesus had a position that he had to play. Even Jesus had a role. He was the only one who could set us free. And he did that. So what's the message here? 
See, there are far more people in Scripture than I'm mentioning, but they were all positioned for the main reason. Again, God places his people to use his people to save his people. As I look around, I believe the report that came to Nehemiah is much like the report we could get today on the condition of the church, that the church in general is not in good shape, that so many churches are crumbling, that so many people are proclaiming Christianity and they look nothing like Christ, that people are leaving the church and, 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 and it's just, well, I hope it breaks your heart. I hope it breaks your heart. Maybe things are good in this church, but what about the church as a whole? Does it break our hearts? And yet in the middle of this brokenness, God positioned you. See, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if God positioned people yesterday and in Scripture, it stands to reason that he's still positioning people today. Do you realize that God has positioned you? In fact, God knew your name before you were even born. God knit you together in your mother's womb with a purpose and a position for you. In fact, when God sees the world and he sees everything that's crumbling around and he sees the state of the church today and he sees the state of your neighborhood and he sees the state of the place where you work, his, his, his game plan for those people has your name on it. His game plan has your name on it. When God saw your neighbors, when God sees the people you work with, he wrote you into the picture. He said, I'm going to position my person here to lead the people in darkness and sin and brokenness back to me. And God has been positioning all of us. You have been positioned by God to rebuild the walls of God's church, to rebuild the walls of God's kingdom, to lead people out of darkness into life, to lead people out of bondage into uh, freedom. You've been positioned by God in your job. No matter where you're working, no matter how secular the environment is, no matter how bad people are there, God has positioned you there. It doesn't matter whether you like your job. It's time we stop thinking that way. It's time we get over whether we like it, whether we don't like it. That has nothing to do with it. It's time we start really embracing the fact that, man, wait a second. God has placed me here for such a time as this. And God has equipped me and God has empowered me and I am what God is doing in this situation. And God wants to use me to bring life to those who are hurting, to bring life to those who are in darkness. And then we find ourselves in these positions. Man, all of a sudden we can go, wait a second, this could be scary. Man, if I do this, if I say this, if I act this way, oh, this could risk everything. It could risk my position. It could risk my finances. It could risk my life possibly. And you find yourself in a Nehemiah moment. And my hope and prayer is that when you find yourself in that Nehemiah moment, maybe you'll realize what your real job is. Maybe your real job has nothing to do with making money for the person you work for. Maybe your real job really isn't, doesn't have anything to do with you providing for yourself. Maybe your real job is that God says, no, I'm positioning you to build my kingdom there. And it's that moment of truth where you go, man, what am I going to do? Will you build his kingdom? We shy away. Are you embracing your position? See, God placed Nehemiah there, but Nehemiah had to embrace his position. 
Nehemiah had to act on his position. God will place you where he wants you, but you have to act on that position. What happens if Jesus said, you know what, I'm out, I'm done. He got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, no. What happens if Nehemiah doesn't do what Nehemiah could do? What if Nehemiah basically cowered and bowed to his fear and walked away? What happens? But what happens if he doesn't? What happens if he embraces the position that God's given him? What happens if he runs that race? Well, I'll tell you what happens. The walls get rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the whole time, which is so cool, is in Jerusalem at that time, you've got Ezra, and Ezra is there. He gets to 13 years before Nehemiah, and then Nehemiah comes, but they're actually working simultaneously at the same time. Ezra's job is he's rebuilding their their, their faith. He's, He's educating them. Nehemiah's job is he's rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah didn't go, I want Ezra's job. And Ezra didn't say, well, I'm tired of working with people. I'd rather work with bricks. Let me have his job. No, they basically embraced their position. Their positions were different, but their positions were from God. Your position is vital to where, to, to what God wants to do in the people around you. Pastor Godwin said that God was saying to him during the first service, before we even preach this message, God wants his people to focus. He wants to focus them to focus on, on, on their basically on their positions and what he has for them. God is all about building his people. The whole reason he positions anybody is to lead people back to him. It's for salvation. The reason why you've been positioned where you are is to lead people to him. Let me also tell you this. God has positioned you in this church. Are you embracing your position? Some of you, God has positioned as, as nursery workers, some of, as, as youth workers, some are cleaning the church, some are like Eddie or doing the snow. It doesn't matter what you are. Listen, it's not all about platform ministry. This is overrated. It's not about being in the spotlight. And forget that. That's silly. Your role is vital. It's not about what your role is. It's the fact that you have a role. And when you embrace that role, too many times in churches, people go, oh, I want to do this. As if ministering to babies. Listen, if you're in the nursery, you love on those babies. And you love on their worn-out parents who can't get a good night's sleep at night because the babies are up all night. Right? And if you're in the youth group, you, you love on those teens or you love on the parents who don't know how to handle teenagers. Right? And if, and if you're cleaning the church, man, you don't clean it for Selwyn. You don't clean it for anybody else. You clean it for the glory of God because it belongs to him. And we embrace our positions. But there are some people in the church who do nothing. Here's what I want to tell you. I can promise you this. God did not bring you here to inhabit the position of nothing. He didn't say your position here in this church, Rob, your position is the nothing position. I'm going to say to Rob because Rob doesn't do nothing. He does a lot. Your position is nothing. That is your goal. How many times in, 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 in the Patriots do you see a guy? He's standing there. What's his position? Nothing. And I do it really well. I'm the MVP of the nothing position. No, nobody has the nothing position. Do you really want to be that person that does the nothing position? God did not bring you here for the nothing position. If he brought you here, there's a position that you're supposed to occupy. And if you are occupying the nothing position, you have not embraced your position. And do you realize that there are people who are waiting for you to occupy your position? Do you realize that 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 game-changing moment where Edelman throws that pass to Amendola, that changed everything? Do you realize Nehemiah's position and what he did was a game-changing moment? Do you realize that you are someone's game-changing moment?
in their life. You go back to when you got saved and when you found Christ. Chances are many of you in this room could go back and go, there was this person. And they don't even know what they said or what they did, but they said something or they did something. And maybe it was insignificant to them, but to you, it was a game-changing moment in your life that came with the right time. And in your mind, you'll always go, man, I am so thankful to God. They may never know it, but what they said changed my life. Do you realize you are someone's game-changing moment if you will embrace your position? if you won't cower to fear, if you will run the race that God has for you, and if you will finish it strong. I love what the Patriots say right now. They just say, basically, the Patriots, do your job. Do your job. And the last thing the Patriots have been saying right now is, let's finish it. Let's finish it. Let's do this. I want to say to you guys, man, finish it. Finish what God has done. Run your, we don't have much time on this earth and God has given you a position. Occupy it well and run for him and finish the job and finish strong. And your life at the end, you will reach people you had no idea you're reaching. And you, and it's not about this, but this is certainly going to be a nice time when someone comes up to you in heaven and says, hey, you never knew that you did this, but I want to tell you what you said changed my life. That's what God has for you. You are the Nehemiahs. You are the Moseses. Jesus says here, come, this do in remembrance of me. This is a picture of sacrifice. And what does Jesus say after almost everything he does? Now go and do likewise. This isn't something that we just take for ourselves and go, man, this is great. No, this right here, Jesus says, now go and do this. Go and lay your life down. Go and lay your position down. Face the fear. Trust me and see what I can do with your life. But it will never happen unless we trust him and embrace him. A few months ago, actually a couple years ago, I should say, I was preaching on Isaiah 58, and I really felt like God was saying, man, you need to preach to the church what true worship is. And Isaiah 58 talks about true fasting. And actually, it's actually a challenge, and it's actually a reprimand on, on God's church. It says, you act like you know what fasting is, but you do what you please. And you don't take care of people. And I'm paraphrasing here. And basically, in Isaiah 58, God says, true fasting is to feed those who are hungry. It's to help those who are oppressed. It's to set those who are captive in captivity free. It's, and he says, when you do this, your light will shine in the darkness. This is what true fasting is. This is what worship is. And I preach this to this church. And what, I, what I've loved about this church, and we are far away from being what God wants us to be, but I want to tell you what I love is we are heading well in that direction. I've watched over the years as this church has now taken their finances, and today there are kids in Haiti who are eating right now today and have house parents. Why? Because you were giving. There are kids in India who are eating right now in an orphanage. Why? Because you are giving. There are people who will be getting medical care in Ghana. Why? Because you're giving. Why? It doesn't affect you, but you're giving. And we begin to reach out all over the globe, helping people the way God has told us to help. And God says, when you do this, your light will shine in the darkness. And since we've been getting into Nehemiah and God's been promising us and telling us, man, I'm going to build my church. And he's been giving us prophetic words for this church saying, man, you're not going to be able to contain the lives of people that are going to come. 
And what's so cool about that is God's saying, I'm going to build a church, a building. But the thing is, his focus is not on a building. That's the byproduct. His focus is on people. And he says, I'm going to reach people so much that you're going to need a new building to house what I'm doing. And the focus is my people. But if we're going to reach those people, you have to embrace your position. See, it's not me. It's not just up here on the platform. It's what we do in our positions where God places us that makes a difference. Isaiah 58 ends this way, and it's been on my heart for the last several weeks as we go to Nehemiah. It says this, basically, if you do these things, he says, then you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations, and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. You will rebuild the walls. You will build people up. God has called you. God has positioned you. Will you embrace your position? There are people waiting for you to embrace what God has ordained you from the beginning of time to do with your life. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I want to ask our prayer team to come forward and make themselves available to pray. You may look nothing like the person next to you. Your skill sets, your abilities may be nothing like theirs, but God has given them to you to be used to glorify his name. I don't want you to respond to Selwyn. I don't want you to respond to to, to just a message. I want you to respond to God this morning. If God has challenged you, if God has spoken to you this morning, maybe God's saying to you, you know what? You have not embraced the position that I've given you. Maybe you've been running in fear. Man, embrace it. Come to God. Ask Him to strengthen you. Ask Him to help you. Ask Him to show you how to live and how to find your role. If you don't know what it is, man, He wants to have that conversation with you. He wants to lead you. This is a conversation He wants to have with you. You were born for this. You were made for this. What you do now matters. Will you go out? Will you change someone's life? Will you embrace the fear? Will you trust God? And will you go where he tells you to go? Let's not talk about church. Let's not just come here and sing songs. Let's be the church. Let's not talk about how Jesus laid down his life for us. Let's lay our lives down for those around us. Let's love. Let's embrace. Let's lead people to Christ. Because that's why we're here. As I pray, I'm going to open these altars up. Just respond to him. Well, Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, I thank you, Father, that you, the King of kings, would see us in our desperation, in our sin, in our sickness. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would come. And God, you would make a play that would change everything in our lives. That in your death and in your resurrection, you brought us freedom. You brought us life, Lord God. You brought us salvation. 
God, I thank you for the examples, Lord God, in your own life. God, I thank you that you just didn't talk about this. God, you didn't just send Moses and and Joseph and Nehemiah and Esther and Mordecai, Lord Jesus. You didn't just position them, but God, you positioned yourself. You lived this in front of us, and then you've told us, go and do likewise. Go and make disciples. Go and lead those living in darkness into light. God, I pray that you would forgive us, Lord God, for losing focus on on what it is that you've called us to do. God, I pray that you would forgive us for, for making our positions about ourselves, about our own prosperity, about our own comfort, Lord God, and neglecting you, Lord Jesus. And God, would you open our eyes to, to, to see the positions that you have placed us in, God, to see our position through kingdom eyes, Lord God. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to, to, to stop grumbling about what position we have and what position we want and what position we don't want and where we are, where we'd rather be. But God, to realize and embrace that you have placed us here now and that we have responsibility where we are now. And God, would you empower us to be your light and a picture of you where you have placed us. Would you lead those around us to know you? God, would you give us the courage and the strength to go where you want us to go and to be who you want us to be for you, that your name may be glorified and your kingdom built. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Ray is just going to close us in worship. These altars are open. Would you respond to God this morning?